Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at WhitRiverside. Well, this morning we're going to be finishing our three-part series, our mini-series on grace. And I hope it's been helpful and challenging, even though it's such a short series. I said at the start that the aim was not that we'd simply get a better understanding of what grace is, that we'd be able to define it better, but that we'd be able to live in the reality of God's grace. And that's the aim of looking at anything. It's not simply uh, anything in the Bible or anything about God. It's not simply that we get a better understanding and leave it there, but that we could live in the reality of it. And that's what we've been trying to do as we look at grace over these few weeks. And this morning, I want to look at what does it look like to live in the reality of grace, to live out the reality of grace. And as I reflected this week, as I reflected on what that might look like, as I reflected on grace, I thought most of us here, in fact, I'd say probably all of us here, would say that we want to be nice people. Am I right? There's no one here that says, I do not want to be a nice person. Okay. And I think equally, a lot of us would say, I want to be someone who gives grace to others. I want to be a gracious person. I want to be grace-filled. And this is partly because we want to be nice, and we know that to be gracious is a good thing. It's a no-brainer. We want to reflect grace because we want to be nice people. It's almost like if I asked this morning, do you want to be kind? I think all of you would, I hope, would respond by saying, yes, I want to be a kind person. But then I thought a bit deeper about what it means to reflect grace. And I thought, actually, reflecting grace is a really challenging thing to want to do. To be gracious is a really challenging thing to aim for. It can be difficult to want to be gracious. Philip Yancey, who wrote a great book that both Chris and I have used in uh, our sermons, he wrote a great book called What's So Amazing About Grace. And he suggests in this book that being gracious is an unnatural act. Being gracious goes against the norms of society. There's something about being gracious that almost doesn't feel right. And when you think about it, whilst there are these great stories that can be told where people have shown amazing grace, uh, Chris shared some amazing stories last week, didn't he, of people that showed grace in the midst of, uh, just in moments where it feels impossible to show grace. And whilst there are those stories, there are stories where people show grace, they're stories for a reason. They're stories for a reason because it doesn't take long for us to realize that these stories are not the norm. 
These stories of amazing grace, grace shown to those who don't deserve it, are not the norm. They wouldn't be such brilliant stories if they were. And in reality, I think it can be argued that we live in a world, or at least a Western civilization, that prides itself on ungrace. We live in a world that prides itself on ungrace. Hang with me here. What I'm saying is we say things like this. You get what you deserve. You, you get out what you put in. And these phrases typify the mindset of the modern Western world. When you look at some of our key institutions, you quickly realize that they're founded on these foundations, that these institutions are based on those foundations, capitalism and the free market, the judicial system, and even athletics and sport. The main focus of all these institutions is an aim for fairness. Capitalism says the more money you bring in, the more you deserve to be paid. Judicial system says the worse the crime, the bigger the punishment. And athletics says the faster you run, the further you throw or the higher you jump, the more successful you will become. The focus of these things is fairness. And even though the focus is on fairness, even though the focus is on fairness in these institutions and in our Western civilization, it's often ignored how monumental cert certain circumstances can be for people, how certain circumstances can affect people's decisions, their abilities, and their opportunities. There's a phrase often banded about when talking about business or competition that says, we live in a dog-eat-dog world. Clearly, what isn't said is we live in a dog-gives-grace-to-dog world. And in reality, what we do in our society in ignoring circumstances like upbringing, race, schooling, and financial security, family... We place a lion in a cage with a mouse and then reward the lion for coming out on top. It was never that fair in the first place, even when it was fairness that was being strived for. The Western world is so engrossed with this idea of fairness that we don't even give grace to those who deserve it, let alone those who don't. You could call this the culture of ungrace but it seems to me to be rooted in a deeper problem. There seems to be a deeper-rooted problem in this culture of ungrace, and it's the culture of individualism. I worked so hard for this, so I should get the reward. I put in the time, so I should be the one that gets the reward. I'm only looking out for myself. I'm just protecting myself from hurt. This individualistic society leads to a sense of entitlement for fairness. But grace seems to go against all of this. Grace, by its very nature, is unfair. Grace, by its very nature, is 
unjust. Jesus told a story in Matthew 20. And if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you open up uh, to Matthew chapter 20? It is going to come on the screens. But this story that he tells perfectly illustrates not only the nature of grace, but the problem that we often have in receiving grace and giving it to others. So Matthew chapter 20 says this. Oh, sorry, this is really small writing. Well, I'll read it anyway. It says this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarii for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one's hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarii. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarii. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last only worked one hour, they said. And you've made them equal to us uh, who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, my friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarii? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. See, this is quite a long story that I just read out. But it's a confusing one, I think. Let me, let me summarize the story for those of you that switched off because it was so long. There was a man who owns a vineyard and he was hiring people for work. So he went out at the start of the day to hire these people to work in his vineyard. And he says to them, I will pay you one denarii for a day's work. And they were like, great, let me come with you and work in your vineyard. A couple of hours later, he goes out again and there are people still there. So he comes and hires them to work in his vineyard and says, I'll pay you whatever's right. Then a couple of hours later, he goes again. And then at lunch, he goes again. At mid-afternoon coffee, he goes again. And then an hour before the end of the day, he goes again. And there are people still looking for work. And the, the man who owns the vineyard says, you come and work for me. I know there's only an hour left of the day, but you come and work for me. And then at the end of the day, when it's time to pay them for what they did, for the work they have done, 
this owner of the vineyard says, first, can you bring me those that have only been working here for one hour? And these people get paid the exact same. They get paid the exact same for working one hour as those who were there all day, working all day through the heat, through the sweat of the day. This is plainly unfair, right? I don't know about you, but I would be feeling so hard done by if I was one of the people that was hired at the start of the day. If I was sweating, if I'd worked my socks off all day, if I was shattered and sunburned, aching at the end of the day, to see that I received the same as the one who hardly got, had time to get the sun lounger out, I would be fuming. This contradicts everything we know about employee appreciation and fair compensation. This was poor business management, poor economics, and simply was not fair. But wait a sec. Did you guys see that Jesus says at the start that this is what the kingdom of heaven is like? He starts this parable by saying the kingdom of heaven is like this. I don't know, is, is God bad at maths? Is God bad at economics? Did he not have an economics degree? Does he not know how to lead people? Or maybe it's not a reflection on God's lack of knowledge. Maybe it's not a reflection on God being bad at maths. Maybe grace was never meant to be fair. In fact, isn't that the whole point? Isn't the whole point of grace that it isn't fair? By very nature, grace is a gift. A gift of favour given by God delightfully. That's what it means. That's what chen the word used for grace in the Old Testament means. A gift of favour given by God delightfully. A gift of favour, not a wage. A gift of favour, not a wage. Grace is not dependent on what we have done or what we have earned but it's a gift that surpasses our achievements or lack of. It goes beyond our mistakes and our brokenness. And this is why Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this parable. Because what we receive, the grace that we have received, is completely unrelated, completely non-dependent on us earning it. The grace we receive has nothing to do with what we have done. And that feels unfair. That feels unfair, right? A murderer can receive the same grace in their dying breath as someone who lived their whole life following the way of Jesus. That's odd. It doesn't feel fair. It isn't based on merit. It doesn't fit in our 21st century Western mindset. But let me say something this morning. I'm so glad that grace isn't based on merit. Because if it was, then I would have 
missed the mark. And can I tell you a secret? So would have you. Because I'm broken. Because I need healing. Grace is wonderfully unfair. Grace is wonderfully unjust. Grace is the gift that simply flows out of the love of God. God gives his grace because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you. God doesn't give his grace because he loves you because of something you did. He gives you his grace because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you. It ends there. That is why you receive his grace. God gives his grace because of who he is, not because of what we have done or even who we are. And it's not that God doesn't care about justice. Don't misunderstand what grace is. He knows that a murderer can't simply go free without punishment. He knows that I can't walk up to someone, shoot them, and then just shrug and say, ah, well. He knows that that's not fair. He knows that there needs to be, uh, there needs to be some kind of responsibility. There needs to be some kind of consequence for our actions. He knows that there needs to be a cost. And there is a cost. There was a cost. See, the gift of grace is a free gift for us. But it's only a free gift because the price has already been paid. So when we talk about grace being a free gift, it doesn't make it any less valuable. It doesn't make it any less, it doesn't make it worth any less. When we talk about grace as a free gift, we need to understand that, yes, it's a free gift to us right now, but it wasn't based off something that was free. It's a free gift because the price was already paid by Jesus. Justice has already been served by Jesus taking our punishment. And it's from that place, it's from the place of justice being served that Jesus, that God extends this gift of grace to us. From the place of justice being served, that we are offered this gift. And wherever you are on your faith journey this morning, whether you've been following God all your life, whether you've tried to follow the way of Jesus as long as you've lived, or maybe you aren't on the journey at all, maybe you feel like you don't really have any relationship with God, you don't know really who God is. Wherever you are on your faith journey, God is offering you this gift. A gift of grace that says you are forgiven, you belong, and you are made beautiful. And once we accept that gift, it lasts a lifetime. Once we accept the gift of grace, it lasts a lifetime. As we journey in our faith, as we journey in our relationship with God, He does not keep a record of every time we mess up. And I think Christians need to hear this more than anyone sometimes. 
God does not keep a record of every time we mess up. He does not put a magnifying glass onto our brokenness. One of the best truths about grace that I think Christians miss more than anyone else is that when you've already received forgiveness, you've already received forgiveness, and because God has accepted you as his family and has made you beautiful, there's no need, it's meaningless, to focus on our failures and sin. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that when we are forgiven, when we receive God's grace, Jesus removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. We don't need to jot up how many times we've messed up this week. We don't need to say, oh, this week I've done one, two, three, four, five bad things. We don't need to be comparing our lives to other Christians and working out whether we're better Christians than them or worse Christians than them. Because we've already received this grace from God. And it says in the Bible that God has removed our sins from us. As I said, as far as the east is from the west. The grace of God covers it. Past, present and future. And yes, we are still broken. Yes, we're in a process of healing. God is healing our brokenness. And this means that we're still going to mess up because we're in a process. But by the grace of God, he says, I've got you. I've got you. So now we've received the grace of God. We are called to respond to it. When we receive the grace of God, we are called to respond to it. We're called to give the same grace to others. Freely you have received, now freely give. In a world of ungrace, we are called as followers of Jesus to give the same grace to others as you have received from God. In Matthew 18, we read of another story that Jesus told, a parable Uh, told to Peter. And Peter's just asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone? And to be honest, I think Peter was being a bit of a teacher's pet at this moment. Because Peter comes to Jesus and he says, hey Jesus, how many times should we forgive? Seven times? Now a bit of context, the rabbis in this day uh, were expected to forgive someone three times. But the rabbis had a rule that if they forgave someone three times and someone still did something against them, the fourth time just showed an unwillingness to change. So you wouldn't forgive them again. To forgive them the fourth time was simply to show weakness. That was how the rabbis went about forgiveness in that day. So when Peter goes to Jesus, he's thinking, I am going above and beyond right now. I am more than doubling the amount of forgiveness that the rabbi normally gives. I really get Jesus' teaching. I get it. And I'm going to suggest that we forgive so much more than the rabbis. And I'm going to show Jesus that I really understand him. And Jesus immediately replies, saying, not seven times, Peter, 
but 77 times, or some translations say 70 times, seven times. And whether it's 77 or 490 times, what Jesus is saying is the number doesn't matter. He was blowing the number out of the water. He was saying, no, Peter, you just keep on forgiving. And then Jesus tells a story to illustrate this. A story of a servant who somehow managed to pile up a debt of several million pounds. It was so much more money than he could realistically ever pay off. There was no way he was ever going to pay his master, the king, back. There was no way he was going to be debt free. He just couldn't afford it. Even if he sold all his assets and sold his family into slavery, he would not be able to pay off the debt. It was so, so large. This debt was unpayable. It was simply not possible to repay it. And then suddenly Jesus explains that the master, the king, abruptly cancels this debt, this debt of several millions. He he completely cancels the debt and the servant is let off scot-free. This wasn't only a relief to the servant, it wasn't only a kind gesture, but this was a life-saving moment, a moment that stopped his family from being in slavery their whole life and still never repaying the debt. It was life-saving for the servant to to receive this grace. But suddenly the plot twists. This forgiven servant, this servant that was given his life, The servant who'd received grace in full seizes a colleague that owes him a few quid. He gets him in a chokehold and he demands, pay me back what you owe me. He shows zero compassion and throws his colleague into jail. This man, the servant of the king, was given his life back. He was forgiven. His debt was cleared. Yet he showed no compassion. He showed no compassion to his colleague. He showed none of the same forgiveness that he received or grace that he received to his colleague. And as Jesus explains this parable, he's using exaggerated numbers. The servant was freed from his debt of millions, yet could not do the same for his colleague that owed him pennies. But the reason he uses these exaggerated numbers he goes on to explain is because the king, the master in this story represents God. And God has given us the grace that gives us everything. His grace that has given us everything. He's cancelled our debt and given us the best possible thing, eternity with the love of the Father. And as a response, Jesus is saying to Peter that we need to share that same grace with those around us. There's no good Peter saying, well, the the eighth time, I'll forgive seven times, but the the eighth time you're not going to get forgiveness when God has forgiven him for so much more. Jesus is saying that as a response to God's grace, We need to share the grace with others. See, for the king in this story, in Jesus' parable, 
to give grace was very costly. His grace cost him several million pounds. But God's grace was as costly as it can be through death on a cross. And there can be a real cost to us showing grace to those around us. There can be a real cost to us showing forgiveness to those around us. But what Jesus is saying to Peter is look at the cost that God has given us. Freely we have received God's grace. Now freely give it to others. I really believe that the purpose of Jesus' parable and the other parables that he says on grace was to encourage those and to encourage us to completely step away from our tit-for-tat world of ungrace. To see that we are called to more than we know. We are called to more than what we see around us. That we're not simply called to go along with the values of individualism in society. Ever since we were young, we were taught the early bird catches the worm. No pain, no gain. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You get what you pay for. And don't hear me wrong, not all of these values are intrinsically bad. But as you read the Gospels it becomes clear that this is the exact opposite message to the one in the Bible. It's the exact opposite message because I did not get what I deserved. I deserved punishment but received forgiveness. I deserved wrath but got love. I deserved a lecture but was offered a banquet. I deserved a slap on the wrist and a stern talking to, but but received the embrace of the Father. We were not only called to be receivers of this extravagant grace, but also to be givers of it. And the church is known for many things, some good, some not so good. But we want to be a church that is known for giving the most extravagant grace, don't we? We want to be a church that is known for being so gracious that people can't understand where it comes from. We want to be a church that is known for showing grace to those that no one else shows grace to. So what does that look like? How can we be givers of grace? I want to go back to this definition that, was, that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. That grace, or hen in Hebrew, is a gift motivated by delight. And we can split this gift of favour into three sections. You are forgiven, you belong, and you are made beautiful. So with this in mind... What does it look like for us to show that to others? What does it look like for us to forgive others? What does it look like for us to give a sense of belonging to others? And what does it look like to bring out the beauty in others? So let's start with forgiveness. 
To be a giver of grace means to forgive those around us. In this parable of the unmerciful servant that I just shared, Jesus is very frankly saying that as followers of Jesus, we must forgive others just as God forgave us. And in the Bible, we read that we should not come before God in worship until we have settled any beef with those around us, until we've forgiven those who have hurt us. Now, can I just say that for some of us, this is extremely hard because we have been hurt so badly. And please note that forgiveness does not mean pretending that you were never hurt or that you were never wronged. In the New Testament, the most common word used for uh, forgiveness is literally translated to the releasing or freeing of yourself. The most common word used for forgiveness talks about releasing yourself from something that happened. Forgiveness can be healing. Forgiveness can be healing, but it can also be so painful. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think that this, uh, the Hindu doctrine of karma feels a lot better for me. That someone that hurt me will get what they deserve. Maybe they come back as a lamppost or something. <laughs> but forgiveness, forgiveness feels much like grace can feel really unfair. It can feel like a really unnatural act. In the amazing book, The Art of Forgiving, Lewis Smedes points out that the Bible portrays a God that goes through progressive steps when he forgives people. Step one, God recovers the humanity in the person that has wronged him. Step two, he surrenders his right to get even. And then finally, God revises his feelings towards the person. Step one, he rediscovers the humanity in the person. Step two, he surrenders the right to get even. And step three, he revises his feelings towards the person. Now, it's easier said than done. But this is a step that these steps are steps that God takes. And I wonder if it's something that we can slowly through a process go through in our forgiveness. When we've been hurt, we need God's help when it comes to forgiveness. When we've been hurt, when we're in pain, we cannot forgive someone alone without God. We need God. But there's also low-level forgiveness that Christians are called to carry. I remember as a young boy being perplexed at how my Christian next-door neighbour would shout at me every time the football went over the fence into their garden. When you look at Jesus' life, you see that he treated people with dignity. And that is where his forgiveness flowed from, looking at the person and not the act. If anyone knows that we all make mistakes, it should be Christians. Our whole belief is set on Jesus forgiving us for our mistakes. So we should understand and carry what it looks like 
to forgive those that make mistakes. We should be people that see past mistakes and see a person who is loved, not people that criticize and treat badly those who make mistakes. I don't know if you're watching any Wimbledon at the moment, but if you were, yesterday there was a very controversial match between Kyrgios and, how do you say the other one's name? Sitapas. Um, yeah, there we go. And there was a lot of anger in the game. And there was a vital point in the second set where the line judge called the ball out. And Kyrgios was fuming because it, the uh, umpire overruled it and said it was in, so the point had to be played again. And Kyrgios turned to the umpire and said, you need to get rid of this line judge. You cannot simply make a mistake at Wimbledon, he said. Kyrgios was fuming and he demanded that the line judge got, fi- got fired because he made a mistake. A mistake was made and Kyrgios wanted to get rid of the person that made that mistake. See, we are called to stand by those who make mistakes. And that can be really difficult. We are called not to judge and make a scene, but to see the person behind the mistake. To show forgiveness and grace to the waiter or waitress that got your order wrong. The driver who's going 20 miles an hour in a 40, or the friend who lets you down. We are the light that shines who Jesus is. So we have the responsibility to reflect his forgiveness and grace. And that means treating the people with dignity in both the big and in the small. But being a carrier of grace does not uh, stop at forgiveness. Being a carrier of grace also means giving belonging and bringing out beauty in others. Remember, when Jesus gave his grace to Israel, he didn't just say you are forgiven. He said you are forgiven and I will be with you always. You're forgiven and I will be with you always. Being a carrier of grace is a commitment to the people around us, especially to those on the outskirts. It's being a cheerleader for those people when they're doing well and also staying with them when they mess up. It's giving community to the lonely, financial support to those that can't pay their bills, meals to the hungry. It's fighting for the outcast, being a voice for those without one and campaigning for equality. See, I really believe that we cannot be givers of grace unless we are committed to the people around us. Living a grace-filled life doesn't simply mean forgiving people, it means living for people. Living a grace-filled life is living for others. It's sacrificing personal comfort and taking the focus away from ourselves, getting out of an individualistic culture and stepping into real community. Community that seeks to support others, to support people in every way possible. Giving people a sense of belonging, giving people our time and bringing out the beauty in those around us. And that can only take place when we choose to commit to people. When we choose to live our life with and for others. 
when we sacrifice comfort, choose vulnerability, open our homes, have meals with others, and intentionally do life in community, that is when we can show grace to people. When Jesus talks about living a grace-filled life, he isn't talking about passive grace. He isn't talking about minding our own business until the opportunity for grace comes along. Waiting to be wronged, because then you can show grace. He's talking about an active grace. Forgiving those who have hurt you. Giving those around you a sense of belonging. And bringing out the beauty in others. I believe this morning that God is wanting to act wanting us to actively seek where we can bring God's grace. Maybe it's a person that you need to forgive, or maybe it's about doing life less individualistically and pursuing community. Or maybe it's about fighting for those on the outskirts and bringing a sense of belonging to them. But as the band come up now, I want us to spend a couple of minutes just reflecting in quiet on this question. In what way can I reflect more of God's grace? In what way can I reflect more of God's grace? Thank you for listening. If you would like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.